0: We're reading from Habakkuk, uh, chapter 1, beginning at the first verse. The oracle that Habakkuk the prophet received. How long, O Lord, must I call for help, but you do not listen? Or cry out to you violence, but you do not save? Why do you make me look at injustice? Why do you tolerate wrong? Destruction and violence are before me. There is strife and conflict abounds. Therefore the law is paralysed and justice never prevails. The wicked hem in the righteous so that justice is perverted. Look at the nations and watch and be utterly amazed. For I am going to do something in your days that you would not believe even if you were told. I am raising up the Babylonians, that ruthless and impetuous people who sweep across the whole earth to seize dwelling places not their own. They are a feared and dreaded people. They are a law to themselves and promote their own honour. Their horses are swifter than leopards, fiercer than wolves at dusk. Their cavalry gallops headlong, their horsemen come from afar. They fly like a vulture swooping to devour, they all come bent on violence. Their hordes advance like a desert wind and gather prisoners like sand. They deride kings and scoff at rulers. They laugh at all fortified cities. They build earthen ramps and capture them. Then they sweep past like the wind and go on, guilty men whose own strength is their God.
1: It's entirely my fault, not, not uh, our sound person's fault. I keep leaving it on mute or leaving it off. There'll be a, a, a question and answer time a little bit later on too. Uh, you can either text in one to uh, my number which is on there or um, just think it up and Craig will come round with a mic in a little bit. Not that long ago... Um, there was a brawl in the middle of Melbourne near Federation Square, uh, March the 12th it was, on a Saturday night, and uh, it involved a group called the Apex Gang. Apparently the police are finding this gang hard to control. Um, there's gang members that are as young as 14 in the gang uh, who have committed armed robberies and even stolen luxury cars at gunpoint. Not that long long ago, a 15-year-old from the gang Was um, charged with crashing a car, stolen car, into another car and killing a young mother. A detective from Frankston said one teenager bailed by the local court had actually been bailed after committing 14 armed robberies. And in frustration, he says, Why a court would even entertain the idea of bail, I don't know. A couple of years ago, a survey of Western Australian police found that 96% of them believe that our courts are too soft. And so the police union president said, police officers are sick and tired of putting up a case and then dealing with offenders getting off on technicalities. You can understand why the police would feel like that, can't you? Why they'd be so frustrated. they bring people in who've broken the law and then it feels like there's no real consequences It feels like the Lord does nothing. It's no wonder that they're complaining. In some ways, Habakkuk, in his book that we're looking at today, has a similar complaint to the police. In verse 1, we read Habakkuk is a prophet, which means that his job was to call people back to God when they walked away from him. He called them back to the ancient agreement that the nation of Israel had made with God. He called them back to what's called the covenant. Habakkuk lived about 600 years BC. And about 800 years before that, God had made this covenant with his people to be their God. All the details of the covenant relationship were recorded in the law. And the law explained God's side of the agreement and the people's side of the agreement. And so Habakkuk's job as a prophet was to call people back to God by calling them back to the law when they wandered from it. But Habakkuk complains to God that he's getting disillusioned with the job. I mean there he was warning people that their violence, their injustice was breaking their covenant with God and so they were going to face consequences. But the problem is, Habakkuk calls out to them, he, he, he calls them out on their, on, their, um, on their breaking of the covenant, he warns them about God's anger, and then what happens? Nothing. He's left standing there looking like a fool, probably with his life in danger, while the evil, evil people, they, they do okay for themselves. Their violence and their injustice, it's working out pretty well for them. And so a little bit like a disillusioned police officer, Habakkuk complains to God and look at what he says in verse 2, how long Lord must I call for help but you do not listen or cry out to you, violence but you do not save. Why do you make me look at injustice? He's saying, what's the point of being a prophet if nothing ever happens? And here's the heart of his complaint. Why do you tolerate wrongdoing? It's like he's saying, You made the covenant, God. You gave the laws. You told us if we keep them, everything will go well for us. But if we break them, we'll face your anger. But because Habakkuk sees people breaking God's law and it seems like God's doing nothing about it, he says in verse 4 Therefore, the law is paralyzed. And justice never prevails. The wicked hem in the righteous so that justice is perverted. What do you think about Habakkuk and his questions? Is this bravery or stupidity? Now, whatever you think of him, he's an extraordinary prophet. Because he's not just calling the people back to their covenant relationship with God. He's actually doing what almost no prophet before him had ever done... He's calling on God to uphold his end of the deal. He's calling on God to not tolerate wrong, wrongdoing, but to deal with it, keep the covenant, God, with all its consequences. Now, is it okay for Habakkuk to be asking these kinds of questions of God? You know, is this, this alright for him to be doing this? We're not prophets like Habakkuk. We don't live in the land of Israel We don't call people back to the covenant. But if we're honest, we can understand his frustration, can't we? In fact, don't we have similar kind of questions for God? Like, why do you tolerate evil in this world, God? And why are you doing nothing about it, God? If God loves people and hates injustice and violence, then why doesn't he explode into action and deal with the evil around us? once and for all? Or we might actually share Habakkuk's complaint to God on an even more personal level. Why is God silent when I cry for help? When someone I love is sick or in terrible pain or dying? Why doesn't the one who loves health and life intervene? Or when I'm mistreated or face financial hardship? Or conflict in my family? Why doesn't the God who loves peace and prosperity fix my situation? Why isn't God doing what we think is pretty obvious that he should be doing? Is it okay for us to ask God these kinds of questions? What we see in God's response to Habakkuk is that he's not phased by his questions. There's nothing to indicate that God's rattled by what Habakkuk says. He's not offended or upset that Habakkuk would dare question him. He's not even defensive. And God is not fazed by our questions either. He wants us to bring our complaints to him. He wants us, like Habakkuk, to cry out to him, confident in who he is. Giving someone... The silent treatment is a killer for relationships. You know when you stonewall someone? I can see some of you kind of smiling a little bit too knowingly out there. Um, Men are classic at this, with their wives. So, we get flooded as men and overwhelmed. Uh, We feel overwhelmed, so we just stop responding. We're experts at blocking people out. God doesn't want us to stonewall Him. He wants us to bring our complaints to him, to ask the hard, confronting questions. I mean, even in the Bible, when you read it, right, it doesn't hold back from asking the hard questions. Read the Psalms. These kind of questions are everywhere. It's not blasphemy to question God when we question from a place of faith. God, aren't you good? That's faith. But this doesn't seem to fit. But even if you're not a believer, you're not someone who has faith, you're not someone who is confident in God, aren't you tempted to talk to God? Some atheists you meet, it's almost like they're saying to you, there is no God and I hate Him. Now if you feel like that, can I encourage you, experiment with prayer. Just have a go. Talk to God. Tell him how you really feel. Tell him why you hate him and see what happens. You never know, you might discover that God has answers that you weren't expecting to find. God is not fazed by our questioning. He's not fazed by Habakkuk. Instead, he calmly, unapologetically responds and the answer he gives blows Habakkuk's mind. And we could come up with all sorts of philosophical and theological explanations for why God tolerates wrong. Like a philosopher might say maybe God values our free will so highly that it was necessary to open the door to evil and pain. Or a theologian might say that through the struggle of this world, God is bringing something into existence that makes all the mess worth enduring for the spectacular outcome. Whether those sorts of answers are right or not, they are not the answer that God gives to Habakkuk here. God doesn't try to justify himself. He doesn't try to give a comprehensive explanation. He gives a very simple answer to the question, why do you tolerate wrong? And his answer is, I won't. I won't tolerate it for much longer. Look in verse 5 where we see God reply. Look at the nations and watch and be utterly amazed for I am going to do something in your days that you would not believe even if you were told. I am raising up the Babylonians. God won't be patient forever. He tells Habakkuk he's about to act decisively against their unfaithfulness to the covenant. And the way God's going to act is extremely dramatic. His response to the evil and the injustice, the violence of his people, who've broken his covenant beyond repair, his response is to raise up the Babylonians, to invade Israel, to attack his people, destroy some and take some into exile. Now, God is well aware that this is going to be quite shocking to Habakkuk as we'll see next week. And he's not under any illusions about who he's raising up. Look at how he describes them. Verse 6, they're ruthless, impetuous. They seize things not their own. Verse 7, they're feared, dreaded, a law to themselves. They promote their own honour. Or verse 11, they are a guilty people whose own strength is their God. God is wielding a pretty dark weapon. Now our minds boggle as to how a good God can use such an evil people. And Habakkuk, of course, wonders the same. But that's for next week. So I've got to leave that question unanswered for now as to how. But for today, I want to ask, what do we do with this picture of God that's presented here? Perhaps for us, it's an uncomfortable picture of God. Who not only judges people but somehow stands connected with these awful Babylonians. Perhaps it's such an uncomfortable picture for us that we can hardly accept it or it's completely unacceptable to us. Now what should we do with what we're reading here? The first thing that's got to be said is that this is just another example where we, will see, where we see that God will never conform our view of him i don't care if you're an atheist an agnostic or a christian god is more wonderful more terrifying more loving more powerful more just more compassionate more fearsome than you could ever imagine The story of God and humanity is one where we constantly try to define God in our own image. You see it in the Garden of Eden. You see it even here with the Babylonians. Verse 11, their own strength is their God. They define God according to their own image. Even Habakkuk is at risk of defining God according to his own expectations from the law. God should act in the way he expects. He's at risk of defining God in his own image as a prophet. But God will not be defined against any human standard. Nothing can contain him. Nothing can limit him. God will never be what we think he should be. And thank God for that. He is so much bigger and better than anything we can create in our own minds. I mean, think about how we try... We attempt to make God in our own image these days. I reckon there are two main molds which we try to force God into. And the first mold is is the idea of rationality. Unless God fits our definition of being reasonable, then we refuse to recognize him as God. And this is pretty short sighted. Are we really so confident that our little brains should be telling God what's rational? an irrational? You know, miracles are a rational God. Why couldn't Jesus just do some awesome science experiments or something like that? Virgin birth is a rational God. Resurrection is irrational. A God that conforms neatly into who we think he should be is by definition a pretty weak and pathetic God. He's smaller than us if he fits in our brains. The second mould we try to force God into, I reckon, is sentimentality. You know, we want God to be soft and politically correct. The question we'd probably put to God today is different to Habakkuk's. We probably wouldn't ask, Why do you tolerate wrongdoing? Today we'd ask, Why aren't you more tolerant? Why can't you just love everyone and overlook all wrong? and say, everyone is right in their own way. We want a God who is not really God at all. We want a kind of life coach God, or kind of like a, a comforting grandpa kind of God. In The Lion, the Witch and the Wardrobe, the kids are told that they're going to meet Aslan, the lion. As, as you may know from this series, Aslan in many ways corresponds to Jesus. And it reads like this, the beaver says, Aslan is a lion, the lion, the great lion. Oh, said Susan, I thought he was a man. Is he quite safe? I shall feel rather nervous about meeting a lion. Safe, said Mr. Beaver. Who said anything about safe? Cause he isn't safe, but he's good. If you're looking for a comfortable picture of God, you'll never discover the true God. God is not safe. God is not comfortable. God does not conform to our limited ideas of what's rational. So what do we discover about the true God here in Habakkuk? And like I said at the beginning of today, this is a three-week series that we've got in Habakkuk. And today we're probably feeling like more questions have been raised than have been answered. And that, of course, is exactly how Habakkuk is feeling and we've just got to sit with that for the time being. But what, is, what can we discover so far in what God said? First, let me just say that we need to be careful not to read ourselves into the picture where we don't belong. In some ways, what's ha- happening in Habakkuk is unique The judgment that God is telling Habakkuk about is a significant one-off event in the Bible. Do you remember last year we did the 10 pop-up moments series where we looked at 10 key moments that stand out and change the story of the Bible? Well the Babylon invasion and the exile was one of those 10 key moments. The book of Habakkuk is not so much answering why there is suffering and evil in the world, It's so much more specific than that. It's God answering Habakkuk's complaint for why he doesn't deal with the evil of his own people. But if we keep these things in mind, there's a lot we can learn about the character of God and how he works in the world. And there's a lot that we can learn about ourselves too. And the big thing that we learn about God's character, of course, is that he is patient Why doesn't God get rid of evil? It's not because he doesn't exist. It's not because he doesn't care. He temporarily tolerates evil because he's patient. You get the idea as you read Habakkuk that he's a bit naive when it comes to wrong. Habakkuk doesn't seem to realise that for God to get rid of wrong, it's not going to be a small deal... It's going to have far wider implications than God dealing with a few people. God's not going to slap a band-aid on the problem. Two years ago, when I was working as a pharmacist in a pharmacy, a man walked up and said, um, can I get something for this? And he held out his arm and there was a, a bit of a kind of red mark and some, some blood there. So I said, what happened? So then he held out his other hand in which there was a dead funnel web spider. He'd been delivering firewood and the spider crawled up his arm and then started to try and get under his jacket, in which case he tried to brush it off and it bit him. So he did what any of us would do. He kept loading the trailer with the wood, yeah. delivered that load, and then drove himself to his friendly pharmacist. Now I'm not sure what he thought I'd give him in a pharmacy, right? A band aid? Now I, I told him he had to get to hospital and I tried not to reveal in my voice that I, I, I thought that uh, maybe it was a little bit too late and it was too late. No, I'm just kidding, I was testing if you're awake. <laughs> Good, you are awake. It wasn't too late, he got to hospital, he was a little bit worried about what he was going to do with his trailer but in the end he left it, he got anti-venom And apart from being numb for a few months, every time I asked him afterwards in his hand, he was fine. But you don't put a Band-Aid on a a funnel-web spider bite. It takes far more decisive, dramatic action than that. For God to deal with evil in his people, it was going to take far more dramatic, comprehensive action than Habakkuk realised. Because the problem ran far deeper Then Habakkuk realized. And so God's patience was actually a good thing. Because God dealing with their wrong was going to be devastating. That was true for them. And this is true for us. God is being patient. But God will not be patient forever. He will act dramatically and decisively. And he will judge us. Are you ready for that? Are you ready for God to judge you? Are you ready to to stand in front of him and and explain yourself? Remembering that he's not a God made in our own image. In fact, he's pretty annoyed that we would even do that. He's not happy that we try to force him into our moulds. The problem of wrongdoing, it runs deeper than we might think. It's so ingrained in us to not honour God like we should. It's so ingrained in us to not honour the people that he loves, people he's made, like we should. That's so ingrained in us that, like Habakkuk, we might be surprised to realise that God's judgement is going to affect us too. There's only one way to stand before God, to be ready to stand before God, And that's for God to make us ready. The Babylonian exile, it's just a taste, just a shadow of God's most dramatic and decisive judgment to come. But God makes a way for us to experience that judgment and to come through it before we die and stand before him. And that's by placing our lives completely into the hands of Jesus. At the cross, Jesus faces God's dramatic and decisive judgment on behalf of those who place their lives into his hands. He's there instead of us. And he deals with our evil once for all time. From God's point of view, you either face judgment in Jesus so that there's nothing more that you ever have to face Or you face it alone, where it's impossible for you to stand. We need God's dramatic, decisive action to save us. But I can't help but sort of ask you the question, are you still metaphorically filling the trailer, loading up the wood? There's a funnel web crawling on our arm. We've been bitten, if that happens don't go to the pharmacy, skip the GP even, just go straight to the hospital. Well, the reality is we have within every one of us the deep-rooted problem of evil. Run to God. He's the only one who can deal with the problem. I read this week something that said that God has done everything we need And the only way we will face his judgment is if we trample over the cross and ignore it. If we refuse to place our lives completely into Jesus' hands. If you don't believe there's a God, or if you're not sure that you agree that he has a problem with you, or if you weren't aware that his patience is running out, can I encourage you, do something about it. Investigate what I'm saying. Soon, as a church, we're going to be running A course exploring Christianity. Come and talk to me about it. Now at this stage in Habakkuk, we've seen very little to unravel the great mystery of why God allows evil in this world. But certainly Habakkuk's complaint gets a clear answer, even if it's not one that we like or understand. Habakkuk says, why don't you listen, God? Why do you tolerate wrongdoing? And God says, I'm not going to for much longer. There's a sense that evil is not as straightforward to deal with as Habakkuk may have naively felt. God has his reasons for holding back. God has his reasons for dramatically acting and judging at certain points in history. But neither Habakkuk nor we are taken behind the scenes to see those reasons. At least, not yet. Maybe next week we'll see a little bit more. Let me pray. Heavenly Father, you are a confronting God. Our minds cannot contain you. You are so much bigger than we could ever imagine or think up. Lord, you are so much more just, so much more fearsome, so much more awesome than we could ever imagine, Lord. And yet, you are also more loving, more compassionate. And your desire to save us is deeper and stronger than anything else in this universe. Nothing else compares, Lord. Lord, as we confront some of the deep questions in this world, in our own lives, Lord, the pain and the heartache that we feel so acutely, help us to bring those complaints, those questions to you. And Lord, help us to see afresh, while we might not understand, help us to see the depth of your love, the depth of your sovereign control and the comfort that this ultimately brings. Lord, help us in our inability to understand all things, to truly know and understand you and know that you've got us covered. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.